that I've, uh, I know that I've shared with you. The perspective, if you've never had the pleasure of living in an Adventist institutional village, the little town that uh, surrounds an Adventist institution like a college or a hospital. I've been at both. I lived in Angwin, California, Pacific Union College, St. Helena Hospital, all of us in this little enclave, literally on top of a mountain. And then also in Bering Springs, Michigan, with Andrews University. Um, the perspective of living in there, you certainly view life through a particular lens. And it was our first um, opportunity to have more than, uh, say, one or two of you on the road or in a room at any given time. It, is, it does change your perspective. I think it's a blessing to live in a place that has a lot of us in it. But also there's a curse that comes with it. Because that particular lens that we look through is always painted by the institution of which is surrounding us. We may feel more at home, but are we? Because the whole, the whole town wasn't certainly Adventist. Maybe not even a majority, but it sure felt like it. At both places, both schools, both colleges owned a supermarket. And it was nice, it was nice having it there. Usually the supermarket was closer, especially in Angwin. The next supermarket that you had, you had to go all the way down the hill to St. Helena if you wanted to go to a supermarket. And at, at, at Berrien, the it was just off campus, so it was very, very convenient to go. It was nice having it. Uh, you know that the prophets went to the college. You, uh, there were things there that you couldn't get other places. The only thing was, was that every Friday, at 2.30, those markets closed. So guess where you found just about every other Adventist between 2.30 and sundown on Friday? At all the other markets. I'll always remember Schrader's. Schrader's was a locally uh, owned market and at the time, Apple Valley owned by the university and Schrader's were actually the only two markets in all of Bering Springs. You would have to go to Niles, you would have to go to Stevensville or St. Joseph. Um, they, they were it. So between 2.30 on Friday and even sundown being at, say, like 4.15 in the winter, guess where you'd find every Adventist in Berry, what seemed like every Adventist in Berrien Springs? You'd find them at Schrader's. The community market, if you will. And what you gauged by was how soon you got in there and kept looking at how soon sundown was. And in your head, you're going, you know what? I, I, I think I'm going to make it. I'm going to get all my groceries. I'm going to be checked out, and I'm going to be out of here before sundown. No one's going to see me in here after sundown. But most Fridays, nah, not going to make it. You know, you just, you just kind of, you know, uh, go out into the dark after sundown with your groceries and just hope nobody saw you. Steve Case tells a story once that he had got his groceries. It is 45 minutes till sundown. He is the next person in line. He knows he's going to make it. And he says, I'm feeling real good because I got a couple of friends coming through the door that I know there's no way they're going to make it. If they're coming in now, they ain't going to make it at all. And I'm feeling real good. And he said, I looked over and the lady that was going to be my cashier, they look awfully hurried and harried and they look stressed. And, and the, the, uh, the, the bag boy, he, he was not keeping up with her. 
And you could tell that he was slowing down. He was backing up. Finally, in her frustration, she looks at him and says, don't you know we've got to get these Adventists out of here before sundown? Hurry up. She actually, I messed it up the quote a little bit. She actually said, there's sundown. And all of a sudden, Steve said that my smugness turned to sadness. Because as I walked out of my groceries, with my groceries, well ahead of sundown, I wasn't feeling very joyful. Because I was wondering what it was we taught this little community of what we're all about. Is it possible that our lens, the way that we see, that even with a precious doctrine, can the doctrine get in the way of the work of Christ? Can our view of a particular uh, lens or view of a doctrine itself, can that get in the way of us being merely Christian? See, we've claimed in the past that we need a lens to which to view the world in order to do his work. In fact, some of us plead with that. We've written songs. There's a hymn that says, open my eyes so that I can what? So I can see, not not saying that necessarily that we're blind. Open my eyes so I can see the world the way who does? The way you do. Help me see people the way you do. Break my heart for what breaks yours. We sing about it. But what if he actually did that? Because Dr. Case, he said he did do that for me that day. He helped me to look at the community through outside of his Adventist lens. And he said, I didn't decide for anybody else, I just decided for me that I wasn't gonna teach this community this about the Sabbath anymore. So what if he actually did it? Would we listen? Would we change? See, I've been convicted in this series The reason I called it his outside voice is that I believe that his parables were meant to do that. His parables were meant for us to challenge the lens in which we view the world, challenge the lens on which we look at the outside, if you will, outside of our enclave, the people that we claim we want to reach. The parables were written for them. Yet what do we do with them when we get a hold of them? Are we listening with the ears that we should be listening to? Has our lens changed when we look at people on the outside? I like that the parables are a subversive tool. They're the word of Jesus. He told every one of them. So they're hard to argue with, right? Would we be so bold to look at Jesus and say, you know what, Lord, I love this parable, but it's kind of messy because it messes with my lens. Would me, the pot, tell the potter, you're making me wrong? I do it all the time. The church does it all the time. So today's parable, I have to tell you, 40 years as an Adventist, every church that I've ever been in as a member or a pastor, I've never heard this parable preached, ever. I've never seen it in a Sabbath school lesson. I've never heard us bring it up and talk about it. In essence, 
Instead of our lens being changed, we just hope that nobody nobody notices this. And how many here go through the Bible every year in your devotion? See, that's hard not to notice it. I'm gonna come across it at least once a year. And every time that I've come across it, at least for the past 40, Nellie can tell you, I've never been urged to preach about it. Nobody's ever come to me and say, Pastor, how come you don't preach about this parable? I could have skipped it this time, and I don't think there's any of you that would have challenged me that I didn't preach through this parable. And you'll know why in a minute. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously. How often? Every day. By the way, Jesus is speaking. This is one of Jesus' parables. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and what? And lick his sores. He said in a certain, I'm sorry, that was from last week. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with who? To be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with who by his side? With Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, Remember that during your lifetime, you received good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm. It's been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Father, I beg you then, send me to my father's house, for I have five, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. I can see it on your faces. You feel it, don't you? It's the way I felt all week. Where's that discomfort coming from? Why are we so uncomfortable with this parable? Could it be because we claim the Bible as our only true authority and that this parable happens to be messing with a couple of other cherished, perfect doctrines in which we hold? Is it? It is, isn't it? It's messing with it outright. Jesus is wreaking havoc with our claim to know about the afterlife, isn't he? The first death as actual sleep, that when we die, we what? We die, okay? No everlasting burning hell, we believe that too. 
He's messing with our doctrinal belief about the afterlife. I think I showed you, I don't know if I've proven it yet, but Luke really uh, doesn't care if it messes with our doctrines. Luke has done that with three parables now. He doesn't care that 2,000 years later, you guys are gonna have trouble with this. I really don't care if it messes with your doctrine, brothers and sisters. Jesus said this, there's a lesson in there I think we all need to learn, whether you're living now in the first century or 2,000 years later. You guys need to learn this lesson. And I told the prayer meeting people that they were gonna hear this line again. Luke says, you know what? I don't care if it messes with your cherished view. There's something we should learn. So there's an urge for us to do something about this. What's our urge? What's our urge? I know that Mark is a teacher. I know that Sam and Grady is a teacher. What's our urge? We got to do something about this, don't we, man? We got to defend a doctrine. Others who believe differently are going to use this as ammunition against us. They're gonna work to point out this error and truth, so we better deal with this before they do. That's what I was told. So you wouldn't believe the crazy ways that pastors in school and everybody have tried to do backflips to back away from this parable. My favorite is that this is an old Egyptian folktale. And that Jesus is using it because it does make a point. So we rally around Jesus and say, wow, he would even use an Egyptian folktale in order to prove his point. Yay! Well, the problem is, is nobody can find it. There's absolutely no evidence that this comes from anywhere, anywhere else besides Jesus. There's no data. There's no archaeological evidence. We haven't found any of it. It was a well-intentioned, nervous professor who wanted us at least to defend ourselves against this assault. So let me help you out. There is a group of scholarship. Dr. Uh, Amy Jill Levine, I've quoted from this book before, Short Stories by Jesus. She says this, and when I, when I read this first line, I, we're probably gonna take a sigh of relief. This story is not about the afterlife. Ooh, Yes, okay, I feel better now. It's not about the afterlife. So goes one refrain among biblical scholars. It's not about final judgment, eternal damnation, or heavenly reward. The motifs of Lazarus resting comfortably in paradise and the rich man frying in hell are merely folklore or metaphor. The parable proves absolutely nothing about a hereafter. It does not document either heaven or hell. No, if Jesus told the story, he merely was playing around with a folk tale tradition. Some of us resist taking the parable in literal fashion, and that's us, don't we? If there's one parable we're not gonna take literally, it's this one. But have we ever had a reason for doing so? We're uncomfortable with this idea of this real heaven and real hell being depicted this way. Harps and halos and devils and pitchforks and fires and clouds. Okay, some scholars are on our side. Is that good enough for you? Shall I have closing prayer now? 
No, I, you can't be begging for it. We're, we're still quite a ways away from noon, okay? What about what the parable actually says? Well, the reason that I know that it could be just folklore and tradition and tale, and by the way, I can't account for this folklore and tale being around at the time. Jesus' original hearers believed all of this in some way, shape, or form. By the first century, there was no absolute way of looking at the afterlife. They didn't have the revelations that we have. You know, if we've been walking with Christ for the past 2,000 years, we should know more about him and what's going on, amen? They didn't back then. A lot of this is folklore, yes. A lot of this is tradition, but it's theirs. Most of the Hebrew scriptures that, that, that came before is very, very vague about what happens if there is an afterlife or whatever. Why? Because they're not ready for it. In fact, they don't have the ultimate revelation of what afterlife is all about. Jesus hasn't come yet. We forget that we're looking back through Christ's lens and that's a pretty darn good lens to be looking back through. His original hearers don't have that. So if a believer in Christ uh, from somewhere else is coming at us saying that this proves that your state of the dead doctrine is wrong, then we have to convince them and show them a true theology of how and why we are saved. This is what our job is. We have to fight against that. See, if they come at us and they say that this proves that your state of the dead doctrine is wrong and that your uh, everlasting burning hell not existing is wrong, if they believe that, then they also got to believe the reasons why the rich man is in hell and, the, and Lazarus is in heaven. They have to believe that that makes sense. And it doesn't. Because we don't know anything about the rich man or Lazarus. All we know was that Lazarus was poor and the rich man was rich. See, this plays into the superstitions, especially the common superstitions about heaven and hell. Mainly that apparently good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, period. If nothing else, this takes place actually before the one event that allows anybody to be in heaven or anybody else to be condemned. The guy that's going to die for everybody to be able to be in heaven, he's still alive telling the story. Right? So this can't be literal. The parable itself says that it can't be. A parable's not meant to be a history book or a big, thick theology book on the atonement. It's not meant to be any of that. It's not meant to be a lecture or even a good sermon on salvation or death. So there. My Adventist discomfort is smoothed over. How about yours? I vanquished those in error to try, who are trying to subvert my precious views with their wrong interpretation of another part of the Bible. Mission accomplished. And whenever this comes back on my radar, now I can read it 
You know, in my devotion, I can read it and I can feel good. I can just allow my, uh, uh, my, my feelings, my um, cherished views to be reinforced and then I'll just move on. My only question is, if we do that, if that's all we use this parable for, if that's all we see it as, is a problem to be solved, then are we really hearing what the parable was meant to teach us? What do you think? See, if these views existed in the folklore of the time of the original hearers, then why is Jesus pointing it out to them? Because it exists. And he's going to use what they know as a clear illustration of the point of the parable. So if the point of the parable isn't the afterlife, and it isn't the superstitions uh, that uh, what good people are able to do or, or get to, and what bad people are condemned with, if it isn't about that, then what is it about? And if all I'm going to do with it is to try to prove somebody else wrong about the state of the dead, then I'm not listening to the parable. What was it meant to teach us? We don't have to buy into a false interpretation. We don't have to make this about concerning another doctrine. What Jesus is doing is can we put that aside for a minute in order to learn the lesson that he has for us in this? Because if not, we might as well just continue to ignore it. What is the parable really about? Dr. Levine puts it this way. He says, what if the parable does say something about the afterlife? which is what the church fathers thought. By the way, what the first generation of all church fathers thought that this parable was exactly about the afterlife. And everyone else who heard it, Augustine, Tertullian, all believe that this is about the afterlife. And probably the majority of the original hearers of the parable, they hadn't read the latest issue of Biblical Theology Bulletin or the review and expositor. They just believe that there is a just God who resurrected the dead and proclaimed a final judgment. What was it they thought? What if we took seriously Jesus' own concern for how people related to each other or how they might live as if they already had one foot in the kingdom of heaven? What if the parable does say something about economic status, a major concern of both the scriptures of Israel and of Jesus of Nazareth? This is how Jesus' original audience first heard it. Should we? We could if we changed our lens. We could if we changed our ears. Want to go back and look at it a little bit? Or we could stop now. I want to know what he has in mind for us, don't you? Let's go back and look at it a little bit. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. I like what she says. She said, any parable that begins, there was a rich man, what's your immediate reaction? When you know that Jesus is speaking, this is not going to bode well for the rich man, is it? There was a rich man. It was like there was a father who had two sons. It is not going to go well for one of those kids. Right? There is a rich man. It's immediate reaction, but why? Why is it? See, I pointed out last week, is it a true corollary? As soon as we heard the words unrighteous judge, we immediately judged him. 
But why? Just says that he was, that he didn't have any scruples. It didn't say he was corrupt or anything. There was a rich man. It doesn't say that he was corrupt. It doesn't say that he got rich by, uh, by robbing. It didn't say anything about that. It just says that he was rich, he dressed in fine clothes, and he ate well every day. Does Jesus teach that wealth equals evil? No. Not at all. So right off the bat, if we're jumping to that conclusion, then we're missing the point of the parable. We are going to miss the point of the parable. He's not standing in Hades begging for a drop of water because he's rich. But wait, doesn't it mean, you know, if, if that he's, he's opulent? Doesn't it mean that he, he wastes his money? Doesn't say that at all, does it? He's just a rich man. By the way, not identified, by the way. No name. Just a rich man. Doesn't say where he lives. Doesn't say anything about him. Dr. Levine points out that he did this intentionally, just like he did with the judge and the widow last week. No names, nothing. All we know is that he's a man and that he's rich. And it's too big of a leap, too way far of a leap to believe that he was condemned in eternity simply because he was rich. Did Jesus ever teach that? He certainly taught that wealth can be a snare, right? But he never said that wealth in and of itself is evil. So we shouldn't judge him, should we? Until the next verse. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. It isn't his lifestyle, it isn't his riches, it's that he's ignoring the poor man at his gate. This is his gate, this is inside. We might be able to forgive uh, certain rich people if they don't uh, go outside and, 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 and cure all kinds of things all over the world, but in your gate, right there? Lazarus is left longing, which means this guy isn't even giving him the scraps that fall off his table. He's ignoring him. Now our, now our picture can begin to change, can it? Because now we're getting a view of what's actually in the rich man's heart. His clothes and his food does not show us anything about his heart. How he treats Lazarus, that's another story. We're starting to get a glimpse into his nature. We're starting to get a glimpse into what really means to him. Lazarus is left longing. By the way, the Hebrew term for giving alms, the Hebrew term for giving to the core is, is zedekah. It comes directly from the word for righteousness. In Hebrew thought, in Old Testament thought, in the law and the prophets and the writings, giving to the poor is an act of righteousness, period. You're doing acts of righteousness when you're giving to the poor. You're reflecting that you have righteousness when you give to the poor. If we claim to have Christ's perfect righteousness, then it can be seen in our acts. Do 
Do you think giving to the poor is high on Jesus' priority? He talks more about wealth and money than he talks about any other subject in the Bible. Jesus isn't being particularly innovative here. He's reflecting his own Jewish culture, culture that's been around and in his DNA for thousands of years now. His Jewish culture is full of DNA, of caring for the poor. His Jewish audience knows this. By the way, the Jewish audience would not be on the side of this rich man. I've heard anti-Semitic Christian preachers say that the rich man represents uh, the, the, uh, the predilection of Jews and money. The Jews would not be on the side of the rich man. Why? Because he's not caring for Lazarus. And ever since God sent the word down from Sinai, it has been within us to care for the poor. So actually, the original hearers, first of all, the Jewish hearers would look at this parable and say, you know, I'm not surprised of this guy's fate at all. That works for me. He did a bad thing, though. He did what? He ignored a poor man. His sin has outweighed his goods. But that's it. Let me ask you, does that deserve condemnation? Eternal condemnation? He committed a sin, didn't he? The sin of omission. Not doing what you know is right. He committed this sin. Should that condemn him for eternity? See? We're not getting the story, are we? If we're using this parable to defend ourselves against something else, then we're not understanding the story. We want to condemn him. Like I said last week with the, the, uh, the widow and the judge, we want to root for the widow. Why? Really, we've been given no reason to root for her. It's just that she looks better than the unrighteous judge. In this particular case, Lazarus looks better as a hero than the rich man. But the point is, we don't really know how evil the rich man is. And if you're going to believe that, then you're going to have to believe the corollary that the only reason that Lazarus is in heaven is because he was poor. Is that a reason? <laughs> to get eternal life? Is it, is it a reason that simply because you suffered here, then God is going to have to reward you in heaven? That's a superstition that most of the world believes, by the way, because the church taught them that. He doesn't belong any more in heaven because he was poor than, Lazarus, than the rich man belongs in hell because he ignored Lazarus. They're both what? They're both sinners. But the parable keeps going with this. The poor man died and was carried away with the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So like I said, if you agree that the rich man deserves his punishment, then you'd have to conclude that Lazarus deserves his simply because he was poor. 
We don't know anything about their faith. We don't know anything about their good works, if there is any. All we know is that the parable is not a true theology of atonement, so what is it about? Look what he says. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. I want you to note that I don't believe that this could happen. But how many of us have ever been tempted to believe at one time, or how many of us have ever heard of somebody who's been tempted to believe that if I could just see what exactly is gonna happen, then I will repent if I just see it? How many here? Just me, okay. If I could just see my fate, then that would be enough for me to repent. Well, here, the rich man has an opportunity, and I want you to listen to him. Have mercy on me, Father Abraham. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Not even after seeing the entire story, not even after being shown that this is why you're here, this is the way that you were on earth. The rich man sees the results and is feeling the results of every bit of his sin, that he ignored God's call to be kind, to help and care. He, of course, needs to repent and apologize and change that now that he sees it, but he doesn't, does he? Send Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus as a slave. He sees Lazarus as an object, somebody who's there for him. Jesus is saying that very nature that controls, controlled him on earth, that very nature that controls what we do on earth, it doesn't change whether or not we know what the outcome is going to be or not. Our nature is our nature. If nothing else, this is proof of why we need saving. We're not gonna change our mind no matter what we're shown the results are. He claims he has a claim to the kingdom. He calls, his, he calls Abraham his what? He calls Abraham his father. You remember John telling the church, you guys think that you'll be saved because Abraham's your father? The Lord could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. He didn't see Lazarus as a human worthy of compassion when he was alive on earth. He still doesn't see Lazarus as a human worthy of compassion, even burning in hell. Even Abraham says, child, Remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Just sounds like it's just too late. You had your chance. Good things on earth, bad things in eternity. Bad things on earth, good things in eternity. It's just too late. And it even sounds this way. Besides all this, between you and me is a great chasm that's been fixed. So those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to here. It's just this chasm. It's just this whole good and evil thing. But actually what he's really telling us is that this isn't a physical chasm. This is the chasm of the rich man's heart. 
He can't even bring himself to repent and confess that even what he did was that bad. He still wants to treat Lazarus as a slave, as subhuman, even in the eternal kingdom. The chasm is his nature. It's not give me a chance to make up for Lazarus. He says this, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that he will not also come into this place of torment. Again, let me treat him like one of my slaves and send him to my brother's house. This isn't, hey, give me a shot to make it up to Lazarus. This isn't a shot to say, you know, give me a chance to go back and change some of the things I did. No, it's to order him like a slave to his brothers. Only save my family. Don't go to anybody else, just my family. Even the answer shows us that what this is really meant to point out is who we really are. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should what? They should listen to them. Did they ever? No. Have we? They have the testimony of the living God, he says. His presence in the lives and the ministries of the prophets. You know what's the beautiful thing about the spirit of prophecy? To me, the most beautiful thing about the spirit of prophecy isn't that the, uh, that the, the last day church got an actual prophet. What it is is to show that even in the last days, God is still willing to be present in his church. The Holy Spirit with his gifts, the Holy Spirit with the fruit, it's proof every day that he still wants to be present within us. He says they're not gonna, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not gonna listen to them. Be willing to trade a dead witness for a living one. Send a dead witness, then he'll know. So we've got this one supposed group of Christians who'd like to come at us and use this parable as a true theology of the doctrine of the afterlife, trying to prove that we're heretics. God punishes sinners who don't measure up and rewards the suffering simply because it's owed to them. Then the supposed group who was put on earth to subvert that superstition and that folklore, there to give a true picture of the most concerned, and all we're concerned about is arguing with them about what they believe. We're not even getting to the heart of the parable. We're only concerned with deconstructing it so nobody has a wrong image of a couple of doctrines that we happen to hold. In the meantime, the world is becoming increasingly hard to believe either of us. The parable does what it's supposed to do. It's illustrating the absolute rock that the human heart is. Nothing changes it. The poor and the suffering right at the gate are ignored. The human with the rock, they can be manipulated. 
The Labor Day Telethon proved that. Whenever Jerry Lewis sang that song at the very end and he started to cry, their donations tripled in that last hour. And that's good. That's good. I think that that's, that's great. That's not bad. That's not bad for a world of hard-rocked hearts walking around. But the parable is pointing out that nothing changes it. Even after we see it, humanity may move, but not move, move. It shows, by the way, something we've already knew, that for all faults, for all of our faults, yes, we have hard hearts, we have selfish natures, we don't love by nature anymore, we don't give by nature anymore. Jesus comes and he, and he saves us and he gives us his perfect righteousness, but every day I've got to fight to bring that righteousness to the fore. I've got to fight that that righteousness makes my decisions for me, and especially, maybe if nothing else, in how to treat other people. I have to fight to do that. With all their faults, humans don't respond to anything else but love. We've been proven we can't be uh, manipulated by fear or by coercion or by guilt. It gets little results, it gets short-term results, but it does nothing for us afterwards. We've shown that. Even out in the world, you want proof? 1964 is when the Surgeon General orders his warning to be put on every pack of cigarettes. What did that do to curtail smoking? Since 1964, every year, more people smoke. Because if nothing else, they said, you know what? You're not gonna scare me into doing something I don't want. But the church thinks that we can. Does God want fear, guilt, or coercion as a reason to worship him? If he does, we're in the wrong church, right? We're in the church that worships the lamb that was slain, not the church of the beast. That's the church you want to be in if you think that guilt, coercion, and fear is a reason to worship God. Did the fear of hell truly convert? Or did it just get people to do what they uh, uh, for a minute to do what the church wanted. And then what was their view of God when they came out? What is their view of God uh, when they try to evangelize people? If our primary concern it was to deconstruct this parable because it messed with one of my precious doctrines, then we miss completely out on what Jesus is teaching with his outside voice. This is about the human condition that does not care for each other. This is about us. This is about our heart. We need saving. So a uh, social media post from a young person that said this, this caught my eye this week. She said, all I know is her first name is Alexandra. She said, I've gotten enough space away now from the SDA church. So she's left, she's given herself space, she says. And I have to tell you, it's obvious and uncomfortable when people befriend you with underlying intention to convert you. It feels disingenuous and predatory, and I hate it. What's she asking for? Is she asking for truth? 
Is she asking for, uh, for us to deconstruct any sort of parable that messes with our doctrine? Is that what she's asking for? Is she asking for, uh, what, what is she asking for? It's obvious and uncomfortable when people befriend you with an ulterior motive. I pointed that out last week, is that we can't even purify our motives for doing good things. Well, the thing is, is that young people have figured it out. They can tell when they're being befriended with an ulterior motive. Jonathan Henderson, when he uh, pastored the Oakland Emmanuel Temple Church, it's called something else now, but that used to be the flagship church in all of Oakland, and it had seen better years, and the neighborhood uh, changed and, and deteriorated, and, and so the, the membership was down, but when he came and took it over, um, he did one thing that they hadn't figured out uh, to, to do up until then, is that they began to reach out to the homeless people that were out in the church. In fact, they were sleeping on the porch. He would, he would come into church to open it up for Sabbath, and he would step over sleeping homeless people. So he said, well, maybe the first thing that we're gonna do if we wanna keep on going here is we need to do something. So the very first time that this church ever wanted to do something for the homeless, they wanted to reach out. Before they went out to do that, before they were gonna go out and take food uh, um, and, and clothing and, and, and everything, they were just gonna, and like I said, they didn't have to go far. All they had to do was go to their own front porch. They got in and, and he said, I wanna have a devotion and I wanna have worship. And he says, they, got, they had worship, they sung a song, he had prayer, and then he said, you know what, I, what I'd really like to do if I could, he said, and I'm not gonna be able to explain this, he said, uh, you're just gonna have to take it for what it is. He says, I wish that as you go out with your food that you would leave Jesus here. And everybody went, whoa, what? He said, I wish that you would leave Jesus here. You're not going out there to do something for them, to make them more in, uh, uh, in tune, if you will, to come to the church. You're not going out there to do something for them in order to be able to evangelize and convert them and bring them to Christ. I wish that you would leave Jesus here. That's always stuck with me. What's he saying? Leave your motive here. If your motive is to reach people for Christ and that is your only motive, then leave it in the church, especially when you're going to take them something that they don't have, like food and clothing. Recognize for yourself that these people have worth whether or not they ever come to Christ. We should be doing this because we care, he says. Not because there's a chance that they might be saved or that we might be saved because we're saving them. It always hit me. I wish we could leave Jesus here. See, it's kind of what I was pointing out last week. Even with our worst motives, sometimes we can do the right thing. By the way, don't keep from doing good things because your motive is impure. <laughs> you know what? Do it anyway. Because I got a feeling that our motive is never ever going to be completely pure. And if we're waiting for it to become pure, that means that there are more hungry and homeless people out there. 
Don't wait. Do it. I hate to say this from the pulpit, but fake it till you make it. The more contact that we have with people, the more that we get to know Lazarus, maybe our motive will purify, maybe it won't, but guess what? Lazarus needs to eat. So it's interesting. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them to be convinced, if someone, he convinced them if it's somebody who rose from the dead. Like I said, if we insist on finding everyone, uh, let's put it this way, as we deconstruct this parable, as we, hopefully, uh, you have found enough distance away from having to defend it against the state of the dead doctrine, have I at least done that today? I know I'm late, but have I at least done that today? Have I given you a little distance away from having to deconstruct that doctrine in order to hear something else in the parable. Is that okay? Okay, I did it for one person, I'm good. Because that's what we need. That's what I wanted to do. But now that you've got a little bit of distance of it, you remember what we're tempted to do with every parable. We're tempted to assign a character in the parable to each of us, right? We're tempted to, you know, like I said, the father uh, is, is God and the lost son is the world and the found son is the church. We're tempted to, to find all of this. Is there a place where we can assign the church to this parable? You see, if we insist on assigning everybody in the parable, we don't relate to the rich man because actually he's a caricature of greed. We don't know anybody this greedy, do we? And that's why Jesus, he didn't want us to actually have to relate. He wanted us to relate to his nature and not relate to how rich he was. You with me? And the same with Lazarus. Can we relate to somebody that poor? Look, he's too poor and too sick to beg. He's not a beggar. If you have an NIV, they call him a beggar. That's a horrible mistranslation. He's just poor. He can't even beg. So we don't relate to him either. We don't relate to that kind of poverty, do we? So if we're looking to really, if you want to really assign who we are in this parable, guess who we are? We're his five brothers. We're still here. We're still wrestling with what to do and what not to do about the Lazarus at our gate we still have an opportunity to hear the living word. We don't need him to come back from the dead to warn us. We already had somebody come back from the dead and give us his testimony. In fact, he gave us a lot more, didn't he? That's who we are in the parable. Are we gonna listen? See, we can read and study and preach all day long. Like I said, Deuteronomy, if there is any among you in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. By the way, that passage is right in the middle of the, of the passage where uh, the year of Jubilee where they forgive every debt. Every debt and every piece of land goes back to the original owner. That's what it says. That's why it says, lend enough to make a difference. If you're gonna give something, give enough to make a difference. 
We know these words and still we make excuses every day. So what we need to do is deconstruct the words. We need to look at our own hearts. We need to compare our hearts to the words and react. A lot of times we just, what we do is a lot of times we just justify not doing what we know we should do. Well, I'm not gonna give them money, they're just gonna do what? So I do nothing. Right? You can't enable, that's not good. You can't just uh, give them a place to live. They're going to end up squatting. And then what? So what I'm getting at is we know that we're that way. Rather than continuing to make those excuses, you know what we need to do? We need to recognize that in us, confess it, and then what? And then go make a change. And by the way, we're only asked to do what we can. The rich man, Lazarus, was within his gates. I'm not asking you to do what you can't. No one is asking me to do what I can't. Do what you can. By the way, did you know that there is a spiritual gift of giving? I just, that to, to me, that's how important giving is to God, is that he actually gives some people the gift of giving. How many here are called to give? How many people in the church are called to give? We all are, right? All our tithes and our offerings. But did you know that there are people out there who don't need to be told to give? They give and the Spirit moves them and prompts them. It may be a huge amount, it may be a little amount, but what it is is that it's usually sacrificial. They give. There are some people that just are able to give. I can name you a couple of pretty famous people right now, uh, and I go over this in the 301 class, by the way, the 301 discipleship class when we do it next year. Okay, is that there are people who actually are reverse tithers. Okay, they live on 10% and they give 90. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you it doesn't come from a fallen human heart. But they actually, there are people that give out of mercy, they're called, they're prompted. They give sacrificially. Hey, and maybe they can make up for the rest of us who don't, I don't know. That isn't the point, is it? Do what we can, he's in the gates. We need to react to the hard hardness when it's pointed out to us. And maybe that's another reason why we don't dig into this parable. It's a whole lot easier to defend this parable against a doctrine, to argue with somebody and debate about what's right and what's not than to have to face my hard-heartedness and my unwillingness to help Lazarus within my gates. As I pointed out a bunch of times before, it's a whole lot easier to quit eating cheese than to love my neighbor as myself. So we're told again by Dr. Levine, the point is not that we have to earn it, 
the point that we uphold our part of the covenant by behaving as human beings should behave. We care for the poor. We are brothers and sisters keepers, are our brothers and sisters keepers. The parable tells us we don't need supernatural revelation to tell us that we have the poor with us. We don't need the threats of eternal torture. If we cannot see the poor person at our gate, on the street, in the commercials that come to our homes, in the appeals made in sermons, in the newspapers, then it's simple. We are lost. So if we know that, then why are we dancing around it? If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But when you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I don't need the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to tell me about the afterlife. I already have Christ who was resurrected to give me the afterlife. We can use it for what it was actually meant to use for, and that is to call us to action, to call us to righteousness. Good things and obedience. If your motive isn't pure, do them anyway. If we can start listening to the parable for what it is, not just a doctrinal test to be overcome and proven wrong, but really about the rich, the poor, and the kingdom that we all already belong in. We're just called to make that kingdom where, where Lazarus is already in the bosom of our father Abraham. We're called for the Lazarus here to feel that. And then God will decide whether or not he's going to actually be in that kingdom. But we don't control that. We control this gate. So let's help out. Thank you for hanging in there when it was tough. You should have seen your faces. Man, I thought, I'm going to have to have closing prayer at 20 after, and I need to get out of here. But if I'm going to be convicted, if I'm going to have to make a decision like that as a devoted Seventh-day Adventist Christian, which I am, then I'm glad to be able to have to do it with you. Let's make sure that nobody misses the grace of God in our gates. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate it.